Hey everybody, this is Flavio Romeo, and this is episode 22 of the Towncast, and I hope everybody had a wonderful Memorial Day. I'm putting this out a little bit later. Uh, it's the audio version of the uh, video that we took with author John D'Amore, John D'Amore. Uh, we took the video version on, it was a Zoom call, and we put that up on our YouTube channel. So make sure, if you don't subscribe to it, make sure you do. If you can't find our YouTube channel, just go to thetowncast.com, and uh, you'll get a link there on our website to take you over to our YouTube channel. So we have the uh, the video version of our of our interview. This is the audio version where you can listen to it at the gym, in the car, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. All right everybody, enjoy the episode. Everybody, here we are. I'm so excited to have our next guest. He's written a bunch of books. I'm going to let him talk about all of his books. The one that came out now, me and George, uh, really excited. We've got a very special uh, reading coming up. So we're going to share all that information when we bring him on. So John D'Amore, I'm going to say it in Italian. It's John D'Amore, which you guys that don't know what Italian means, John of Love. So... John, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on, Flavio. It's always wonderful when I get to do any kind of interview, TV, podcast, anything for all the people in New Jersey. Because as you can hear from my voice, that's where I'm from. And sure. <laughs> and I know you spent a little bit of time. I know you didn't grow up. Where, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, I did the first 12 years in Union City. I was born, uh, as most people in uh, Union City, Jersey City area, I was born in Margaret Hague Hospital, uh, which for those of you in Hudson County, you'll go, oh, yeah, I was born there, too. <laughs> and then uh, at, at 12, uh, we moved to the country. We moved to Sea Caucus, uh, which at the time Wait, was people live, the country. People, people live in Sea Caucus. Uh, yes, they did then, <laughs> and they certainly, and a lot more of them do now. Yeah, that's uh, true. but of course, when I lived in Sea Caucus, there were no uh, shopping centers other than the Acme Plaza that was in the center of town. Uh, there was there were no tall buildings, no high rises, no hospitals on the river, nothing like that. Uh, For fun, when you think about it, uh, for fun, what we used to do is go under the old Route 3 bridge and jump into the Hackensack River and go swimming. (laughs) Uh, Certainly, you're not Who knows? We shouldn't have done it then. I don't think I would ever do it now. Right. (laughs) But nothing happened to you. You were okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, uh, but then, you know, think about it. Back then, uh, we we also used to get on our little Stingray bikes and ride behind the mosquito spray truck. And here we are. So, (laughs) uh, you know, so either either I'm very lucky or uh, I don't know. But maybe long term of effects will hit me right after I get off this call. So, So that's that. Well, I know I, I really appreciate it. I know, I know there's the uh, the Friends of the Hawthorne Library put this reading together that's coming up. It's going to be on June 2nd. And I, I'm going to put the link to the Zoom because it is a Zoom call. I'm going to put the link on the bottom of this video. So make sure you guys uh, take a look at it on YouTube. And for those of you that are listening to the, uh, the podcast, I'm going to have it in the description so you have all the Zoom information. Great, thanks. Just don't forget that password, that very difficult password, one, two, three, four. That's a tough one. Yes. Yeah, so you might have to write this down, guys. <laughs> so, all right. So you grew up in Jersey. How did you get involved in writing? Like what, what, what was your inspiration? Inspiration uh, is an interesting word. You know, growing up uh, as a kid in Union City, literally within viewing distance of the Empire State Building, you know, uh, it, it, we were a, a, liter, a, a stone's throw away from Manhattan, the greatest yeah. city of, in the world. I mean, entertainment took place there. Uh, uh, certainly everything from theater to 
concerts and I'm talking about it, not not real concerts yet, but just, hey, you had Palisades Amusement Park that used to have great yeah. concerts. And again, that was only a bus ride up Bergen Line Avenue to yeah. uh, to get to to Palisades Amusement Park. So I would say the interesting uh, thing that started me on this was in 1963. Uh, I was just short because it was July and my birthday would have been in August. So I was just short of 10 years old. And uh, my father, who didn't finish high school, he also grew him and my mom both grew up. She was in Weehawken. He was in, uh, sorry, she was in Hoboken and he was in Union City where they grew up. Uh, my father loved American history. You know, he did his time in World War II, like a, a lot of them did. And, and he just loved American history. So when I reached the age of being able to understand or appreciate such things, you know, say about six, seven, eight years old, he would start to, uh, during his uh, two-week summer vacation uh, in July, he would take us to these great forts and Valley Forge. And you got to remember, too, I mean, even now in New Jersey, there are those signs all over about, you know, George Washington's retreat or, you know, battlegrounds of, uh, the oh, battle yeah. of Monmouth and, and Morristown and stuff like that. So I always was interested in um, the American Revolution, but certainly the Civil War. And uh, so in 1963, he packed up uh, the car and took me and my mom to uh, Gettysburg, which was the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Wow. So, of course, Gettysburg made a big event out of it uh, at that time. Yeah. So here I was in Gettysburg for, you know, a week, maybe. Uh, and just going around and seeing where these battles took place and they had museums and I was interested. I was just blatantly interested. And so what started me on writing, at least that got me interested in writing, uh, was, you know, in September, when you go back to school, now I'm 10 years old and uh, uh, it's fifth grade. And what's the first thing the teacher asks you? What's your first homework assignment in school? Right, yeah. what you did over the summer. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there's, there's no other thing to say, right? What you did over your summer vacation. So the average kid would write, you know, we went down the Jersey Shore. Or we went out to Long Island. Or we went to Coney Island. Or we went to visit my aunt in Florida. Or something like that. I didn't want to write that. I didn't want to write, I went to Gettysburg. So what I did was, and I'm sure you remember those old uh, black and white uh, composition books. Uh, oh, yeah. The oh, lined I composition books with that black and white front on it. I wrote about, uh, I would say maybe, uh, and of course, in 10-year-old handwriting, uh, I wrote like a uh, 12 or 15-page story about a nine-year-old kid who lived in Gettysburg and got to watch the battles. And I detailed all the information that I had learned during uh, that trip there. Was it, course, based I, on real, was it based on a real nine-year-old or just? A no, not at all. Nice. Not at all. You know, they just, they did talk about how people lived in, in uh, literally right around the battlefield, yeah. you know, and I mean, it was their farm and stuff and and there were lots of stories and i used it too you know about how on one day uh you know a troop of american soldiers stopped at the farm to kill a pig or drink water or treat their wounded and then you know a day later you know they'd move away and then confederate soldiers came through and did the same thing because there was a battlefield and what do you say to a guy with a gun and so uh, we're 30 <laughs> come <guys>. on in. <laughs> yeah, come on in. And and so I wrote that story all based on how it how a nine year old kid saw the battle from the hills 
and yeah, how yeah. you know and wow, everything so that cool. not just the battles but to a degree I, I mean probably the devastation of it too and i handed it in to the teacher as uh, as uh, part of my, as my assignment and uh, within a couple of days she had given it to the principal of of uh, i guess at that point i was going to washington school and remember that for later, folks, but I was going to Washington School in Union City and the principal gave it to one of his secretaries who typed it up on carbon and then used carbon paper. And then, if you recall, they didn't have Xerox machines back then. No. They had a thing called a mimeograph machine and they <laughs> ran off like 300 copies of my story. You know, and there was whatever the title of the story was, Gettysburg 1963, something like that, by John Diamond. And it might have come out to be seven or eight pages typed, for all I know. And they stapled them on the side, you know, as if it was, uh, you know, a regular uh, spine of a book. And they distributed it to all of the kids in the fourth fifth and sixth grade in union city and literally overnight i was this i was john diamore the writer you know and uh, i will not lie to you uh certainly the attention from the girls was not uh something that i despised uh (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know i was like well this is pretty cool and and so they asked me because they thought I had some ability to work on the school newspaper. And I did, you know, and I would write, you know, uh, the, the baseball team had practice today you know, or something <laughs> like that. Well or, written. So-and-so got detention. And I, I, I don't even remember what it could be. And I did that for a while, but my heart was really into uh, being a musician. Uh, I had been taking guitar lessons, uh, since I was about seven and a half years old. And I want you to know it was at least three years before the Beatles hit America. So it wasn't that I was influenced by them. Actually, I was probably more influenced by two people. Uh, the, the attention uh, that Elvis Presley had always gotten, though I didn't really dig his, his music because it was, I found it to be rather simple, but, the one who really influenced me to pick, pick up a guitar and play and, and play the guitar was Chuck Berry, because it wasn't just that he performed and played a guitar where Elvis held the guitar and didn't really know how to play it. Uh, Chuck Berry not just played the guitar, but he wrote a song about a kid named Johnny who, uh, you know, Johnny be good. And it was all about a guitar playing kid named Johnny someday would grow up to be the leader of a big old band. And, um, and that's what did it. But on that night, and this is a, this is a fairly common story on that night that the, uh, the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan on Sunday, February 9th, 1964, uh, as the majority of us were sitting in front of a, uh, a small black and white TV screen, you know, and, Kids were going crazy sitting at home watching them. I was sitting at home going, look at that. That's a D minor seventh. And, and he's playing a A sharp augmented. And uh, wow, look, I, he's playing a bar chord. I have trouble with bar chords. And, yeah, and so you're uh, watching the technical side. I was, watching the, I was watching the musicians play. Granted, I loved the songs, but I was watching the musicians play. And what absolutely knocked me out that night, and I will always remember it, and I, I obviously have the, the, the DVDs now of it, Uh, Most people never really consider it, but you could talk to any guitar player and ask them to uh, watch that. And on that first night, George Harrison uh, did the guitar solo for the song called uh, Till There Was You, which was a Broadway show, uh, a Broadway song. Uh, And he did a guitar solo. And just remember, he was only 20 or 21 at the time and was 18 when he recorded that solo. 
I find most guitar players can't cover that solo today, no matter <laughs> how long they play. But that's that's sort of what did it for me. And of course, so once the British invasion started of the Beatles, the Stones, um, all of them, Herman's Hermits, Manfred Mann, I mean, the list is endless. And that's the original, the first, uh, even... Petula Clark, people like that. Uh, that was the first invasion. The second invasion of like Eric Burden and the Animals and the Who and uh, those British groups, they came about a, a year later. But by then I was just hooked. And then, of course, you had the the great American bands at that time. Uh, the Beach Boys certainly had a couple of hits before the Beatles ever got here. You had Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, which they weren't the Frankie Valley yet. It was just the Four Seasons. Yeah. And these were all Jersey guys. And yeah. being Italian and and considering the industry or the business that my dad was in, I would often get to go to these clubs during the day to see them uh, do their sound checks. And here I was like 11, 12 years old or 10 years old and uh, and seeing them do sound checks and then driving away and hearing Dawn or Ronnie or, you know, uh, big girl, uh, big. Uh, yeah. Big girls don't cry. Uh, hearing all of those songs as I as we drove away, and I'm saying to myself, "Wait a minute! I just saw this band doing it." <laughs> so, so that was sort of great. And like I said, we had the uh, uh, Palisades Amusement Park that had constant bands, and you know, thanks to uh, cousin Brucey. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so th that's the influence, and and so then writing sort of took a, a back a back. Uh, uh, a backdoor to uh, my music. Uh, if I was going to write words, I thought I was going to be a great songwriter, you know, so I was writing words and writing music, but I was very fortunate because I took lessons so early in life. And, and uh, you know, my father made me practice. It wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't one of these kids that played two or three finger chords. You know, by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I was doing arpeggios. I was doing reverse arpeggios and half the guys in the bands I was with had couldn't even spell arpeggio, <laughs> but I was, I was, I was brought in. Hold on. You may have to cut this. Uh, you got to take it. Uh, no, this is Luann. This is this is the woman who actually got me in touch with you. She knows I'm doing an interview on screen. Ah, with there you go. So give her a shout out, Luann. Thank you so much for putting this together. <laughs> Hello, Flavio. Hey, Luann. How are yeah, you? I'll talk to you later, John. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So, folks, if you want to thank somebody, that's Luann Roundsville. She is a friend of the Hawthorne. Uh, library and she's the one who's making this reading happening and she's also the one who made uh, the con the initial contact for this uh, for this interview to happen though I'm sure there are some other people who actually made it happen too so anyway let's get back to this um, so because I had this ability to read charts at an early age when I got to high school where I was a freshman and sophomore I was immediately brought into those rock bands that played dances with right. juniors and seniors. And then as I became a senior, um, I was brought into bands with guy who with guys in their 19, 20 years old, even though I didn't look like they did because uh, let's just say I'm only five, seven folks and everybody else that I know is somewhere around five, 10 to six feet. And so, uh, but, I, but I loved it. And I, I played uh, the, like I said, a lot of dances. And then once I was able to, uh, once I hit 18, I was able to get what's called an ABC card and that's called an alcohol and beverage control card so that you could play in bars at that time. And I also joined the musicians union and, um, I, and I just I wound up having a very fortunate music career until later on when it turned out that no matter what band you were in, 
uh, there was always, you know, the lead singer wanted his name in front of the band, like Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons or right. Tommy James and the Shondells or uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders featuring Mark Lindsay, you know. And, and so the singers, once they uh, got a little popular, which we all did, but once the singers got popular, they wanted that stage name up front. And uh, and that would usually cause some, I was just happy to be there, but it would cause some kind of problems sure. and the bands would break up. So then at some point, I remember, I think it was like 1975, early 75, I had a, uh, a manager who called me up and said uh, that he had a friend who was a commercial producer in New York City. And the producer called him up and said, "Ah, I got this guitar player. He's been missing a lot of gigs. I need somebody who could read charts. My manager said, I got just a guy. So I went there. I went to the studio. I brought, you know, my Les Paul, my Stratocaster and my Ovation acoustic. And so that I'd have everything that I would need. Um, and plugged in and they put the charts in front of me and I ran through it once by myself, once with an audio track. And I think like the third or fourth time we cut it because it was only a commercial. All you needed was about 45 seconds of music, uh, but well-produced music, of course. And it just started from there. I was very fortunate from there. And then somewhere around 1985, uh, I realized uh, I didn't want to be in my 60s or 70s like some guys are and, and who are out there still playing in the midnight hour and good loving and Mustang Sally and and some Grateful Dead songs, you know, to to to. And I certainly know a lot of guys who are who have those digital recording studios at home right now saying. Uh, yeah, you know, man. Nine, uh, 2022 is going to be my year. And I was like, don't you remember around 1973, you said that was going to yeah, be yeah. your <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I got out. I had a wonderful run, uh, had some ups and downs during all of that, as many of us did. But that was it. That was it. I got out of that. Uh, so then I got into the corporate world, uh, which, believe it or not, my years of being on screen, I'm sorry, my years of being on stage uh, made it so that in the corporate world, I was able to do things that the guys who had those BAs and those MAs uh, who were so, uh, wow, I'm not going to curse. So uh, <laughs> let's just say that these guys thought that, you know, they had it all until they had to get up and do presentations in front of 700 people and they couldn't. Yeah. yeah. And so here I was, you know, with my high school degree and a, a semester and a half of college that I would take for classes that I liked. And I'd get up on stage and I'd sell those, uh, I'd sell those big programs that, that they couldn't do. And I wound up uh, succeeding very well until about 1999 when I decided I had been wearing a suit and tie uh, for about 14 years at that point. And I realized I didn't want to grow up to be like those guys. So I, uh, I packed up my car and drove to California where uh, I had already had many friends from the music business and some family and, uh, and just set up shop in Hollywood. And it only took about a year and a half, two years before I wound up being what's called a script doctor for uh, several of the studios, the bigger studios, and a lot of the production companies. Really? And I, yeah, yeah, I did that. I had a lot of fun, you know, because um, a lot of people said that it was because I wrote sort of how I played music. There's timing to the way words should be. You know, you sure. can't just throw a lot of words on there. To me, that's like a guitar player who has this much space but wants to put in that many notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could, 
if a, a good guitar player could fill that space with one note, if he plays the right note yeah. instead of that many notes. So I did the same thing with writing and in screenwriting, that means a lot. You know, there's the, the thing about screenplays is uh, unlike a book where you have unlimited amount of pages to tell your story, a screenplay has uh, a maximum of approximately 120 pages. Of course, unless your name is Coppola or Spielberg or Cameron, and then uh, you can write as many, pages many as you want. <laughs> but they really just like their screenplays to come in between 90 and about 110 pages. So being able to condense uh, scenes was one of my uh, one of the things in my forte. There you go. So, so I enjoyed that. And, and then during that period, uh, I had written this book about something that my family from New Jersey had done in Las Vegas in the mid seventies that I had become a part of first unwittingly, and then extremely happy to do it since I was 22, 23, 24 years old and uh, was having the time of my life with my closest cousin, who also happened to be my godfather. And for those of you who are Italian, you will understand what that means. Uh, and, uh, and we were doing these, uh, this thing out in Las Vegas that I always wanted to write about. And uh, in 1998, when my godfather was told he had a terminal illness, I decided that's it. I could tell my story now. And, uh, and I started writing it. And even what he read before he passed away, he said this would be a fantastic story. And, and I did. Uh, I wrote it. It's called The Boss Always Sits in the Back. And uh, I put it aside. I wrote the manuscript. And one thing I could tell you, folks, if you decide you want to write a book, don't go to Los Angeles to sell it. They don't sell books in Los Angeles. They sell screenplays. Where do they sell books? In New York. And, <laughs> and I didn't drive 3000 miles across the country and live in palm tree land uh, so that I could come back to New York, New York or New Jersey to try to sell my manuscript. It was at that point I was offered uh, to do my first script doctoring. And after I succeeded at that, uh, things took off for me. So I just worked on that uh, around 2011. Thanks to a really bad, uh, whoever negotiates the contracts, at least at that point, for the Writers Guild was terrible. Uh, just remember, it is a guild. It is not a union. So the rules are different. And people in California are not very apt at contract negotiations, at least for writers. When you're negotiating against the Producers Guild, Producers wake up negotiating as soon as they wake up in the morning. <laughs> Do it for you a know, living. They talk to themselves. Do I want a cup of coffee? I don't know. What's it worth? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, so I chose. Uh, so I uh, at some point after that contract, and it wasn't very favorable for those of us who were script doctoring at the time. I pulled out my manuscript, and a lot of friends said, "You know, you should self-publish this book." I thought about it, talked to a few people, had them read it. I did a few edits on it and I self-published the book and it took off. It took off in ways I would not have imagined. And uh, of course, <laughs> there were even a few bookstores in New Jersey at that time. And this is 2012, 13, uh, where if you recall, folks, there was a, another book that came out that was very popular at that time. And it was called Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and no matter where you turned around, everybody was talking about it and everybody was buying. it. If you were a bookstore, you made your year on handling that book. Except for three bookstores, two in Jersey City and one down in Metuchen. My book actually outsold uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. In really? I was very happy. I was ecstatic, actually. So, um, 
So I, I toured the country on that. As crazy as it sounds, I did uh, three cross-country national tours on one book uh, over the course of about three and a half years. And then everybody started saying, when are you going to write a follow-up? Well, I couldn't write a follow-up because those guys were dead. They never did anything as spectacular as what they did from 1975 <laughs> to 77. Uh, so they were either in prison or they were dead. And, um, and by that time, I had run my course with those people. And, um, and so I, I uh, really didn't know what I was going to write. So I pulled out one of my screenplays that I had written with somebody else and turned it into a manuscript. Lo and behold, it did the same thing. It just, and, and it was not in the same genre as the boss. Well, I, at that point I decided, and now by now that book was released in 2015. So I realized that I had found my niche. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, it's, it's just one of the wonderful things that I've done because it's not just for me while I write these books and the feeling that I get from writing them. It's after they come out and people read them and the, the things I hear, the things I, uh, I get phone calls from friends. I get emails from strangers, uh, Facebook. Uh, I mean, even today, I can't believe it. Uh, somebody on my Facebook page posted a picture of them with my fourth book that they're reading. And I now have six out. So I, I, uh, I'm very fortunate. And all six books, and this is what's unique about me. I don't say every writer should do this. But this is what's unique about me. No two of my books are of the same genre. I'm not like those mystery writers or detective story writers. I don't have recurring characters in them. I don't even tell stories that are remotely similar. Um, yeah, I, I have to point that out because I, I, I love it reading your bio and reading the uh, description of each book. And I'm, I'm going to read the titles off real quick. You mentioned the boss always sits in the back. And guys, listen, if you want to know this kind of cryptic message he was just saying about, about his days with his godfather, then you got to pick up the book. You really got to read the book. It's, it's, it seems like it was a very personal book, right? It's, it's a memoir. It's actually a memoir. So, uh, which usually writers don't write a memoir until they're in their 60s or 70s and have experienced, you know, their lives. Uh, I got to write about uh, something great that took place uh, in my uh, early to mid 20s and stayed with me until I was in my 40s, until I actually you were able to, to put it. Yeah, it's great that you were able to put it on paper. He's got yeah. dead. I love the premise of Dead Fellas. Uh, delivery Man, As Long As I Have Lips, he wrote Rub Down, and, and the new one that's coming out called Me and well, It is out. It's been, it it came out, uh, yeah, in early January. Oh, actually, uh, it came out. Let's see if you could figure this one out. It came <laughs> out on February 22nd, 2022. February 22nd. Besides the fact that the date was 2 22 yeah 22 i remember that why else would a book titled me and george come out on february 22nd and that just shows you didn't pay attention in high in history class <laughs> it's george washington george washington's birthday that is correct <laughs> and that is the george in me and george yeah tell me a little bit about the book well, uh, that's really interesting. And I, I see that even though I said I didn't want this to exceed a half hour, we've blown that away. Um, I'll make it quick. Uh, like I said earlier, I had taken some uh, classes in college that weren't really toward a degree. It was classes that I was interested in, class, non-matriculated classes that I wanted to be knowledgeable about. And since I was at that time, 19 or 20 years old, and was 
uh, I needed to sign contracts, a lot of contracts, regardless of if I was with a band or we were recording or I was doing session work, I would need to sign documents. And I got tired of spending, ready for this, folks, $65 an hour on an attorney. Now I would wow. <laughs> I would pay $65 to find an attorney for $65 an hour. Right. But anyway, uh, so I, I would take uh, uh, law classes, contract law, business law uh, at Bergen Community College uh, at that time. And uh, when I wasn't touring or had time when I wasn't doing session work, which usually took place at night anyway. And I would take these classes and to drive to Bergen Community College, you would drive and get on uh, Paramus Road and then uh, you would pass what is called the George Washington Memorial Cemetery. It's literally right by Bergen Community College. And in my, uh, in my own way, I kept saying, what what the hell did George Washington ever do in Paramus? <laughs> no clue. No clue. Why? He's not buried there. Uh, so one day I uh, I pulled into the cemetery and went up to their office and said, uh, I found like a manager or a supervisor or something. I said, why George Washington? And they said that, you know, after he took another defeat, because George Washington's armies took big defeats. A lot of them. A lot of them. And uh, as they were retreating during the 1700s, the latter part of that, you know, during those the war years, uh, that area was nothing but woods. It was a forest and it had a clearing in the middle of it. And so here he was with a handful of hundred uh, soldiers after a battle, many of them wounded, and he needed a place to feed them, take care of the, you know, have his medical people for whatever they were back then, take care of the wounded. And uh, that's where they stopped and pitched camp. Now, the problem there was that many soldiers passed away. They died there. So he buried them there. And that was the Revolutionary War. Well, during the Civil War, American or Union soldiers wanted to be buried where Washington soldiers had been buried. Wow. And then during the Spanish-American War, veterans wanted to be, be buried there. World War I, veterans wanted to be buried there. And so it, it then just became, besides uh, military people, it grew into a massive uh, cemetery. So I took that story with me in my head. And growing up in Union City and Sea Caucus and anywhere in Hudson and Bergen County, like I said, you would see those signs for Washington's retreat or such and such a battle took place here. And it always dawned on me when I was a kid. I went to Washington High School. There's Washington Street in Hoboken. There's three Washington townships in New Jersey alone. Uh, we have the George Washington Bridge. And I would always remember saying as a kid, I wonder what George Washington would say if he was here today to see all this. So after I had that experience at the cemetery, uh, in the library of of uh, Bergen Community College, they had a bank, maybe five or six of what were called select uh, IBM Selectric typewriters. They had a little electric ball oh, in the middle. Ball that rotated. And it actually had something where you could backspace and delete your edits and retype over them. It was great. So I bought a ream of paper. And to use these, you needed a quarter. Remember like the old washing machines? You put a, a quarter in there and press the thing in and pull it out. Oh, yeah. With that, you would buy uh, a half hour of time. So I would bring like a roll of five dollars worth of quarters and a, a ream of newspaper. And I started writing this story. And of course, over the years, uh, you know, life took hold and I would write a chapter here, two chapters there, put it away in a drawer. 
And then as I got into the corporate world, maybe when I was flying around the country, I would bring the pages with me and I'd write some stuff and then go back home and, and type it into my typewriter. And then computers came along, folks. And I took that, all of those pages, which may have only been about four or five chapters, and typed it into what was called a DOS program. Oh, yeah. anyway. Okay, so then from there, I had to, you couldn't, you couldn't take a DOS file and put it into a new writing program, which was called WordPerfect. So I had to retype everything all over again. But every time I wrote it, I'd make some changes. I'd make it better. I'd make it a little longer. And then came Word. And so I was able to flip it over into Word. But by this time now, I was in Hollywood and was writing The Boss Always Sits in the Back. And so me and George was way in the back, way in the back. Uh... I'd take it out from time to time, but also one of the things that would happen over those years, remembering I started writing this story in 1977. That's when you started writing me and George? That was, yeah, that was it when I was doing uh, the college thing. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a good point. That's something to emphasize because, you know, I know a lot of people that whether they, whether they're doing artwork or they're writing poetry or they're writing a book or a screenplay or whatever they're writing, you know, if they don't like it, they throw it away. Let it sit there because there's something there. There's something that inspired you to put pen to paper. Absolutely. Leave it there it. and take a look at it down the road because you never know what the inspiration is after all those years, like you're saying now. Absolutely. So what had happened was, now you got to remember, in the uh, 80s, I didn't play with it much. But in the 90s, you know, when I was in that corporate world environment, I realized that the story I had written every time the lead character, the me in me and George needed to make a phone call. He had to wait until he got home to use his landline and listen to his answering machine, or he would pull over and have to have a quarter in his car so that he could use a pay phone. Okay. So that was, that was the 1970s. So then by the nineties, I had to update it so that he had a pager. <laughs> there were still pay phones there were still house phones and then of course as we got later into the 90s i had to update it again cell phones but you know cell phones with antennas and you know you flip them open and uh by this time now everybody's faxing so i had to upgrade that comes the pandemic and I had released Rub Down. Uh, and I was like, what am I going to write next? You know, I don't really know. I have no idea. I took out me or I opened up the file for me and George and said, maybe now's the time. Maybe this is the time to write this story. You know, I had, I had as with most uh, stories, you know, you start writing and what you think is chapter one just like with the boss, when I started writing the boss, what I started writing is chapter one. Today is chapter five. You need to constantly add that backstory. Yeah. And so uh, I wrote this story about a science fiction writer who lives in a high rise in Fort Lee, overlooking the George Washington Bridge. And, uh, and he just has a series of great events and he decides, like I have done many times, uh, to drive across the country to California for an awards ceremony. And on his way back, he stops to visit a friend in Philadelphia and uh, gets caught in a uh, terrible thunder and lightning storm. And I'm not going to tell you how, folks, but his car is hit by lightning and lo and behold, George Washington is sitting in the back seat. And now he's he's, you know, of course, not believing and just being freaked out by having somebody in the back seat is isn't enough when the guy says he's George Washington in the in the verbiage uh, and, and, and the way they spoke in. This takes place in 1789 when this transition happened. 
and they become best friends. And over the next several days, they develop a friendship uh, that that leaves a mark on both of them. But then, unfortunately, George goes back to his time. And now you have a science fiction writer who tries to tell people what really happened and nobody believes him because <laughs> he's a storyteller. And, uh, and that's the gist of me, and, uh, of me and George. And if anybody's interested, my books are certainly available on my website where you can get signed and sent to you. And that website is www. John and John is J O N. So it's J O N D A M O R E. You can go to my website. You'll find the page to buy them. As a matter of fact, you can get all of my books there. And if you buy the combo discount package, they're very cheap <laughs> and they do come signed. Uh, and people buy them that way a lot, especially uh, they do them as gifts. But I'm not here to sell my books. I'm just here to talk about them. But uh, <laughs> you can also get them on uh, Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com, though they, uh, you'll pay full price there and they will not come signed. There you go. There's my little plug. Yeah, and I tell you guys, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great gift for uh, if you guys like to read, you know, people in your lives that, that, that love to read. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people always say, I, I don't know what to read next. What are you reading now? Uh, you know, you heard it right from the author's mouth. And you go on johndamore.com, J-O-N-D-A-M-O-R-E.com. And like you said, you're not only going to buy the book, but he's going to autograph it for you. Uh, so you get I'll even personalize it for you, too. Look at that. See, for the listeners, do you hear what he's going to do? Do you hear what he's doing for the listeners, the viewers? Uh, he's going to go ahead and personalize it. The reading, once again, is June 2nd. Uh, the links are below. And uh, if you guys if you guys have any problems, you know, you can contact the Hawthorne, Friends of the Hawthorne Library. I think uh, I think it's at 8 o'clock. Is that correct? Does it say 8 o'clock on there? Is it 8 o'clock? I'm going to look at the flyer right now just to okay. make sure. And uh, if you if you choose that you don't want to do it from home on Zoom, you can actually go to the library where they're going to be showing it on a large screen too oh that's so, awesome yeah yeah, yeah maybe gonna, they'll have be, uh, coffee and cake or something for you. it's going to be a, yeah 8 p.m eastern 7 p.m central 6 p.m mountain and for you guys on the west coast 5 p.m uh so you can tune in you can hear uh you can hear john talk a little bit about his book and you can go on his website and read about the other books and and i love the fact again i'm gonna i'm gonna reiterate i love the fact that each one is a different genre that that you as a, as a creative writer are, are explore, you know, I feel like when, when I, and I'm not putting down writers that, that write, you know, like, like the born identity and all the born books and right. Clive, you know, all these guys that write. I love them. I love the movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you being creative are exploring these other genres. You're, you're I'll, trying tell you, I'll tell you why I did that. Flavia, I'll tell you why I did that. Also, folks, just so you know, the the reading will not be as long and tedious as hearing me on this uh, <laughs> interview. Uh, I keep the readings uh, 18 to 20 minutes, followed by about a 10 minute uh, question and answer. So it's only a half hour. But uh, I'll answer. I'll, I'll tell you why I do that. Uh, you know, being a trained musician for all those years. I played everything from a, a screeching guitar through a wah-wah pedal and a large uh, Marshall stack to being able to play an acoustic guitar. And th the great bands or the great acts that we've loved over the years, they don't play the same style of music. Oh, every song stays the same. It shouldn't be. A good group or a good musician should have that ability. I mean, let's take it you know to to even billy joel who can rock with the best of them and then his next song is just the way you are you know yeah. i mean you could even take it closer i don't really i'm, I'm not really hip to a lot of the current acts because i don't give them a lot of credence uh which uh is my fault but uh i love real musicians not electronic musicians and um 
you could take it up to Van Halen. Now, granted, there was a power rock band, but they also knew how to play some nice soft tunes. But you know, before they before they went insane and crazy and and rocked your your brains out for the next song. And that's not just what a good musician should be, but it's what a good author should be too. The good author should be able to. Every track should be a different type of of song for a musician or a different kind of genre for a musician. Well, it should be the same thing with each book for a writer. That's my opinion. And it works for me. So, guys, again, January 2nd. It's coming up no, this week. July June, 2nd. Don't June do January, 2nd. folks. I'm not going to be there. No, it's June 2nd. Not <laughs> it's June 2nd. It's coming up this week. So, June 2nd. Uh, jump on Zoom, or like John said, if, if you guys are local and you don't want to sit in front of the computer, go down to the Hawthorne Library. Sit there with a bunch of other fans and, and watch John do the reading on the book. Uh, and if you want to buy the book ahead of time, go online, go to John Demore, J-O-N-Demore.com, pick up a copy of the book, tell them you want a little personalization in there, you want to send it to a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, uh, it makes a great gift, teacher gift. Uh, what better gift to give a, your, your child's English? That's right. There you go. That's right. Good um, piece of literary work. Also, the books are, for those of you who no longer read the printed page, but wanted uh, an e-copy of it, it's available on Kindle, Nook, and iPads also. Beautiful. So, uh, John, I really appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you taking the time. I know we went over, but people are not going to be bored. I, if I wasn't bored... I don't think people are going to be. Bored. I know <laughs> That's you bore. Great. I know you bore yourself. <laughs> I do. I've heard. I've heard me talk quite a bit in the last ten years. But thank you for this opportunity, and I'm always happy to come back and do it again, especially well, for the people in Jersey. I, you'll, you'll, uh, you know, the longer you know me, uh, you'll see that uh, there pretty much isn't anything I wouldn't do for uh, the libraries in New Jersey, uh, bookstores, but you know. They're in it for a profit. The libraries are doing it because they want to expose uh, books and reading to their membership. Yeah, and I love that you're doing it at the Hawthorne Library. So I look forward to on your next trip up to Jersey, make sure you let me know. We'll go out and get a cup of coffee. And uh, everybody's going to see you on June 2nd. Thank July 2nd. July. Is it July 2nd? No, it's June 2nd. Oh, is it? Yeah, now you see, now you got me all confused. Oh. Look, June 2nd. <laughs> Folks, I am really, really sorry. I'm I'm dealing with a lot of dates here. <laughs> I know. What do you, what do you, I, I, I was taking them back to January 2nd. Yeah, that's okay. But uh, <laughs> I, I apologize, folks. Flavio was right. I was wrong. Uh, it is June 2nd at 8 o'clock, and uh, I will be doing it for the Hawthorne Library and the Friends of the Hawthorne Library will be showing it live on screen. And thank you to Luann and thank you to Anne-Marie Peterson for, uh, for putting us together. And John, thank you for your time. All right, don't go away. I'm going to sign off and then I'll come say goodbye. You got it. All right. I, uh, I hope to see you all you guys on Zoom on June 2nd. And if you did read the book, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure John would love to hear some nice feedback, you know, nice, good reviews. Uh, if you have any questions, you can, always, uh, you can always email John. Go to his website, johndemore.com. If you have any questions for us, you can always send it to comments at thetowncast.com. All right. Uh, be well, everybody. 